in life, we are called upon to make what seem like an infinite number of decisions. Each day presents opportunities before us, and the choices we make then shape our lives. We make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. Forty years ago, in 1980, there was a book written about making decisions called Decision Making and the Will of God. It was written by Gary Friesen, a professor at Multnomah Bible College out near Portland. The subtitle was interesting, A Biblical Alternative to the Traditional View, suggesting that traditional views on the will of God may not be biblical views. And some of those traditional views have been, even the scripture has been used to support them. A, a verse like Romans 12, 1, 2, and 3, some of you know that verse where Paul says, I appeal to you on the basis of the mercy of God that you present your body to the Lord, this holy, acceptable unto God, our reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, and here it is, the trilogy, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And some preachers would get up and wax about how God wants us to know and do his perfect will. And of course, then it would be said something like, uh, you know, if you miss the perfect, well, at, at, uh, at least get into the acceptable category as if it was a stratified tier. And if you, if you, you, you miss the good, at least, or, or, you know, the acceptable, at least get in there in the good, you know. And so, so as if there was three tiers of the will of God. By the way, the Apostle Paul, in writing that wonderful verse, is using three words to describe one thing. The will of God is good. The will of God is acceptable. The will of God is perfect. So here we are at Thanksgiving, 2021. This is the will of God. We all wrestle with what God wants in life. We'll come to forks in the road. I remember when I was in college, brooding over marriage. It was settled, and one night I went to a lecture that a professor gave at a men's dorm on the will of God, and in the middle of the lecture, he said one sentence that changed my life and headed me into matrimony with Andy, for which I am grateful, uh, coming up on 40 wonderful years together. Thank God for my wife. But the, the professor was there, and he said, just in the middle of the lecture, talking about the will of God and understanding the will of God and doing the will of God and knowing the will of God. He said, I could have loved many women. I chose to make surely the love of my life. I remember once in ministry, uh, I was very happy doing what I was doing, thrilled that God gave me something to do in his work, and I was happy. And suddenly I got a phone call and someone said, look, we would love to have you come and lead our ministry. It's like, what? You know, I'm not looking for anything. Well, I know, that's fine. You're the kind of person we want. We don't want anybody that wants to get out of where they are. 
And it was a wonderful opportunity. And so I was pondering it. And like two days later, I got another call. Hey, we know the will of God for your life. It's to come and lead, lead us. And so I have these three wonderful opportunities. And I couldn't figure out what to do. It's like I was praying, Lord, help me. What is your will? By the way, that book argues that the traditional view says something like this. God has decreed what you should do. He called it, the author called it the dot, that. And your object in life is to figure out what the dot is and do it. So you hunt and peck and figure out what you're supposed to do. And then you, you better get the dot. If you don't get the dot, so, you know, it's a great camp message, you know. Everybody came forward because they wanted to get the dot, you know. Get the dot, get the dot, you know. We got to, we want the perfect will of God. We got to get it. And uh, so th th that was the, uh, so here I am. I'm, I'm confronted with three things. And it's like, do I do this? Do I do this? Do I, I don't know what to do. So I thought, and a multitude of counselors are safety. So I went to see a Scottish friend. We're eating lunch. And I lay it all out before him. Very wise, wonderful guy. He said, Eric. What rings your bell? I said, what? He said, Eric, what rings your bell? What rings my bell? What does that have to do with me trying to figure out what I ought to do? He said, Eric, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I go, what do you mean? He said, be holy and do what you want. It was tremendously liberating and gave me insight into how to understand the will of God. If you ever desired to know the will of God, you've come on the right Sunday. If you ever desired to understand what it is for a church to be acting in the perfect, let's use that old language, the perfect will of God. Because it is when we are firing in all, on all cylinders in our realization of God's will for us in Christ, that we become a contagious church that's irresistible to a watching world. Because what distinguishes us is the beauty of the will of God lived out in the lives of the people of God at that place. Whenever I hear a person say, Eric, I don't know what to do with this what is God's will? I know they don't understand God's will. Because the will of God is clear. It's not something we find. It's something we obey. Now, we come to a text this morning that isn't difficult to understand, though its presence among the people of God is not often easily distinguished. And that's sad, because this is what God wants for us. So come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a letter that Paul wrote in the first century to a church. And he's telling them that Jesus Christ is coming again. And he reminds them of our great hope, the consummation of the ages when Jesus Christ shall come. And as Handel picked up on that phrase from the book of Revelation, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're coming into that time we, that is sung once in a while. That looks forward to that great day. Indeed, joy 
to the world. That's coming. So he writes this book, and he ends the book in chapter 5 with a series of rapid-fire imperatives, commands that he gives. Uh, It's like a semi-automatic rifle, just bang, 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 bang with the grandkids and was in a Nerf war for a little while in the past few days. It reminds me of that, too. He gets to the end. Let me read to you the passage that we're going to think about. Now, in the middle of this whole series of commands, we're going to pick out three, four. We're going to pick out four. And I'm going to read them to you now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. This is how to live in light of his coming. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Hear the word of the Lord. We're going to go three different directions this morning. First, in order to have a robust response from our hearts to this call of God upon us, let's build scaffolding around our response to this text with two statements. That's what we'll do first. Secondly, we'll just look straight on at the text. It's not unclear. It's not difficult to understand. The greater question is not, do you understand this, or is this clear to you? The greater question is, are you, am I living this out? Does this sound like us? So we'll look right down the barrel of these three commands, what God has revealed for our good. Remember the title, this is the will of God. Thirdly, we'll identify what's at stake. There's a lot at stake in our response to these commands. So that's our plan of attack. Number one, what scaffolding do we need to erect in order to build a response to this text? Before we come to the text, let's build a means to understand it and live it out. Statement number one of two, the will of God is not something unknown that we must find, but what is clear that we must obey. Remember through the morning the message title, this is the will of God. Five years in, I am trying to uh, catch up and learn how to be a fantastic grandfather. I very much commend it if God gives you the opportunity. It's good stuff. One of the great disciplines that uh, we go through, it's our two oldest and I play the sophisticated game of can you find what I just hid in this room? so, all right, you hide your faces. Paul will hide it. So I hide it. All right, Paul, are you ready? Yeah, it's hit. So they'll start walking around the room, rummaging through things. And when they get close to it, I start whistling. So then they come like bees around a hive, you know. Then Then they'll finally get, yeah, Paul, here it is. You didn't hide it very good. Now, if I really want to get them, I'll hide it in some unfindable place. And actually take a little humorous uh, joy in, in, in their frustration express, oh, we can't, come on, come on, give us another clue, give us another clue. We have this back and forth. 
here's the good news for us as followers of Jesus and our good Father in heaven. He is not hiding the will of God from us. As if we're supposed to have a PhD from Harvard and finding it in order to achieve that perfect will of God. No, the will of God has been revealed to us. We don't have to find it. Our problem with the will of God is not finding it. It's obeying it. It's responding to it. Augustine said in the 5th century, the will of God is the word of God, and the word of God is the will of God. So in that sense, the will of God is not something to find, it's something to obey. And so the question is, are we obeying the will of God? One of the many glories of the word of God is its clarity. Twain had it so right when he said, you know, I'll tell you that what disturbs me about the scripture is not what I can't understand. The part that really disturbs me is the part I can't understand. Because <laughs> he knew that God was calling him to obey it, and he didn't appreciate that very much. And he uncorked with that statement. If we're trying to find the will of God, we don't understand the will of God. Statement number two, these three life-shaping imperatives that we're going to look at, these three life-shaping commands deal with how to handle our days and our circumstances. Life in a fallen world is hard. It's broken. It doesn't work like it should. And to machinate through it as gears come together in a machine, machinate, to machinate through its difficulties, it gets exhausting. We're presented with any number of conundrums. I think if, there's a statement from Calvin I read once. I haven't recovered from it. He said, in life, we are presented with innumerable inducements to anxiety. And we either collapse under the cumulative weight of them all or we turn to our Lord and we trust him. And it's really that simple. And if your heart is full of anxiety this morning, first, I want you to know that I get it. The world is anxiety-inducing. But all the sweetness of casting our care upon him do know you're sitting with a group of people who both get what it means to fight battles and who also get the encouragement of someone who loves them and who's aware of it and who's cheering them forward. And that's what I want us to be together. Now remember, one theme in 1 Thessalonians is the return of Jesus Christ. So he closes the book telling them, how do we live in light of this hope? How do we live before he returns, living. How do we live knowing that Jesus Christ is returning? And he shapes that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as God moved him to record this for us. Living for Christ is actually sorted out on the ground in the midst of the nitty-gritty of life in this fallen world and in everyday life under the sun. Now watch as we go through these commands for the terms. There are two time terms. First in verse 16, 
rejoice, notice the time word, always. You say, Eric, you know, give me half credit. Once in a while I have joy. Episodically I have joy. I remember last May, there was an afternoon I was joyful. Always. Verse 17, without ceasing. Eric, I prayed last week. I was in a traffic jam, bored, didn't have anything else to do. You know, I prayed. Pray without ceasing. Two time words. Watch for those time words. Then there's one circumstantial word. As we sit here this morning, we're a wonderful group of humanity sitting in the middle of a pile of circumstances. Isn't that true? By the way, I, uh, you're ringing in your mind as the people who've influenced you at uh, Howard Hendricks, dear professor at Dallas Seminary, so influential on so many. He had a stock answer. And he'd say, hey, how you doing, buddy? Oh, pretty well under the circumstances. He had a, a, a return quip every time. What are you doing under the circumstances? Get out from under there. What are you doing with that? We're all fighting battles. But here he says, in what circumstances we are to respond and how in every circumstance have a heart of gratitude. So watch for those two things, two time words and one circumstantial word. All of us face stuff. The way of Jesus' life that we've been called to means that you and I face things differently. We face things differently. It's not the same. This is the life that we've been called to. And it makes us attractive to a world that's living on another page because they know nothing of this. Now the scaffolding is erected. Now we're ready to discern. The question is, are we ready to obey? So what is God's will for Calvary on this Thanksgiving? Look at verse 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If you look across the page at chapter 4 and verse 3, he's framed it as well. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your life set apart, living for Christ in his way. He declares in the clearest of terms, this is the will of God. It's manifested in three ways in these imperatives. By the way, they're all present tense imperatives implying continuous or ongoing, recurring activities. Joy that continues. Prayer that is sustained. Gratitude that comes out of our heart all the way along. So what is the will of God for Calvary on this Thanksgiving, number one, the maintenance of sustained joy as we live. Verse 16, rejoice always. The shortest verse in the original language of the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Joy. By the way, the words chosen in that subpoint A are important. I brooded over them. The maintenance the maintenance of sustained joy as we live. 
Joy is a theme in this little book. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. By the way, please note, joy and affliction can live in the same neighborhood. In fact, joy is made more extraordinarily beautiful living in the same house as affliction. Now there's affliction sitting in this room this morning. And so those are not enemies. We can have joy in the middle of hard things that we are facing. And what's really neat is God takes joy in being next to us in our hard things to show us himself. That's what he's joyful about. Showing up and demonstrating his grace. Look at 2.20. Joy comes up again. For you are our glory and joy as Paul saw authentic Christianity emerge in the life of these Thessalonians. He had joy. Look at 3.9. He says it again. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God. You get the 5.16. How are we to live before Jesus comes? Rejoice. Always. Joy is characteristic of a healthy Christian life. It's promoted by the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. This becomes a theme in the New Testament. Think of Paul and Philippians. I will turn there and remind you of two verses that you already know. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 14, uh, four, 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 rather. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. My seminary professor wrote a little book called Happiness is a Choice. It gets back to this word maintenance. Because joy in life is all about the direction where we are looking. Because there's nothing that is ever diminishing about the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a fixed gaze upon him as the central wellspring for our joy will never take you to a place other than joy. Remember, always is there. Rejoice. Always. So joy is a choice that we make. It's a virtue that Christ produces in us as we set our hopes on him. In light of what's true about him, of what he has done, of what is to come, of what is before us, of what is certain about the consummation of all things. Joy at all times, not intermittent or circumstantial. In the face of the coming of Christ, in the face of 
the hope of a restored world. Joy is sustained. Wanamaker said their joy is closely associated with their confidence in future salvation and vindication as a part of the community of God's people. Rejoice always. If I would hand your friends, or if you would hand my friends, a piece of paper and say, write down five adjectives of this person. Would they have joy written down as one of the five? Rejoice always. In Christ, there is always cause and a wellspring for rejoicing. And there's nothing that's better for the cause of Christ than a joyful follower of Jesus. Is that you? Is that me? Is that who we are? If you take the temperature here this morning, how much of it comes up? Man, that's a joyful group of people. Is that us? Secondly, what is God's will for us at Calvary? The continual practice of conversation with the living God. Verse 17, it's straightforward, it's clear. Pray without ceasing. Pray. A sustained, open portal of communion with God through Jesus Christ, without ceasing, constantly recurring. It doesn't mean we wander around with ceaseless mumbling in conversation with God. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 14 to the Pharisees, he gets on them for long, showy prayers. And he says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Prayer's value is not in how long it is and the substance of the, the, the uh, sum of the words used in prayer. No, that's not it. I think it was during the Reagan administration at the height of the Cold War in America that we establish a immediate means of communication with Russia. It was back in the threat of nuclear war days. Remember, some of us remember, now kids, get under your desk at school. We're going to have a nuclear war drill now. And, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe I wasn't that far along, but I think it occurred to me as I was under there, crouching under the desk, thinking, you know, if a nuclear bomb went off, what help is this desk going to be? But anyway, that's... A, but in the middle of that, they set up an open channel. So it was like a bat phone at the White House. So Reagan could, or whoever could pick it up and say, hey, Brezhnev, you know, what up today? You know, hey, let's not, let's not burn each other up in nuclear war. Okay, that's a good idea. You know, hang up the phone. That was an open channel of communication. It was an open portal. Our oldest son, he, uh, he loves college football with me, and, and he's, he's better than Kirk Herbstreet. I, I, I think he misses calling as an IT director at a hospital. But anyway, he, he analyzes everything. It's really fun to listen to him talk during a game. He'll tell you what's going on. You've, you've seen the same thing, but you haven't seen what he's seen. And so the other night I called him, and it was right before a game was coming on, and he happened to be watching it. As I had the sound off, and I was talking to him, watching it myself, and Suddenly, he begins talking about the game, and we were done talking. It's like, oh, no, I, let's just keep this going. So there'd be time where he, he'd be commenting on the game. Then there'd be some silence, but I knew he was there, and he knew I was there. And then something else would happen. He'd comment on that. I mean, he was better than, uh, you know, Peyton and Eli on Monday night, the other, uh, 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 
game cast there, you know. And so he's coming in and out. And then finally it's like, hey, Caleb, I'm going to hang up the phone. Let's get off the phone. And so we, we did. And, but I thought of that this week. Pray without ceasing. It's like an open channel of communion. God speaking to me. Me going through life. Negotiating life and all of its twists and its turns and its advantages and disadvantages and its slights and its blessings. The whole ball of wax. Just in a constant open exchange with our Lord. Pray without ceasing. Luther said that's not about long prayers, but it's about not being long between prayers. I like that. Do we live life in a sustained conversation with God? That's what it means to pray without ceasing. Do we pray through life? How are Calvary's prayer habits? How I'm grateful for those of you who tomorrow morning will receive the Access Calvary list of at least 10 things to pray for for this week. Thank you for doing that. That's one emblem of prayer. I'm grateful for Dave Stockman and his hosting of our Wednesday evening prayer meeting in the library while Awana is going on, while Calvary University is going on, crying out to God. Many of you will tell me, and nothing is more encouraging, Eric, I, I, I prayed for you, or Eric, I'm praying for you. And what we do, our work on our knees at home before our Lord as we seek Him, that matters. It's a part of this whole ball of wax. Pray without ceasing. Is that us? Or as you sit here this morning, I mean, just take last week. It's a garden variety week. Well, maybe it's not. You know, it's Thanksgiving. By the way, I find that whenever my routine is altered, I don't like it because I, I get into a routine and, and I have my habits with our Lord. And then you throw in Thanksgiving and you throw in this and that. And it's like, okay, you, you, you got to be more disciplined on those days than you are in your regular days where you're used to the habits. But let's just take this week. What kind of a week of prayer was it for you? What kind of week was it for me? What is God's will for Calvary on this Thanksgiving? The maintenance of sustained joy for life. The continual practice of conversation with a living God. Thirdly, the cultivation of gratitude through each day's situation. Look at 518. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now listen all the way through because this can be a real turnoff for some. Now we know Adam's children, that's all of us, humanity, we are not good at gratitude. In fact, one of the characteristics of the ungodly in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, according to the Apostle Paul, is, among other things, neither do they, here's his phrase, give thanks. Neither do they give thanks. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, when he says, this is what will characterize the spirit of our age toward the coming of our Lord. People will be ungrateful. By the way, in a culture of entitlements, it pushes back all room in our heart for gratitude because we develop the suspicion that beginning with God and government and everybody else 
They owe it to us. Gratitude assumes nothing. First from God and then from anybody else. Gratitude recognizes that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So when you receive it, beginning with our breath and our heart that beats, it becomes the wellspring of a grateful heart. Who in this room, what do we have that we have not been given? Who in this room does not owe everything to God? who offered everything he had for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. What love. What sacrifice. Our default and our natural reflex as humanity is not gratitude. The habits of giving thanks are only developed by intention. We have to be intentional to be grateful because we can slip into a mode of I have this I've worked for this I'm owed this and I'm going to enjoy this what you need to do is get to this God gave me and you'll have more joy in it because you'll recognize where it came from in everything give thanks now that word in everything is troubling it's troubling on the one end from uh, those of us who observe others who I would call a uh, uh, kind of a TV Christianity. Uh, hey, praise the Lord. My mom just died. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. I'm grateful. What? There are some awful, terrible, evil, rotten things in this broken world. But what we can be assured of in the circumstance is what Paul is describing in Romans 8, 28. God is at work. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in the midst of the death and the grief and the loss and the struggle, we know that God is in the struggle working all things together for good and for his glory. And it will, all things will find their resolution at his coming, which is sure and certain and no death for Saul's forestalls that or no loss is going to change that and so even in the midst of a hard thing we can have gratitude knowing what is emerging in the realization of our hope you talk about a day of vindication because right now we walk not by sight we walk by faith and it will be revealed then what we can't see now but know to be and it, someone has said that our hope is like an atomic bomb that has gone off in eternity. A good atomic bomb. That's a horrible metaphor, I suppose. But we feel its reverberations in time. And we know it's going to be realized. We feel its aftershocks. And feeling those aftershocks, even in the midst of loss, we can say, oh God, Thank you for even this loss because I have found in the midst of my deepest losses, I have sought the Lord 
in my emptiness more earnestly than in times of bounty. And so it has even brought me to be grateful to those, which is what he's talking about here, in everything give thanks. To thank God at all times is to see God at work in every situation bringing about his saving will. God works in each situation. No matter what the situation, our hope remains. God wants folks to be joyful. God wants folks to be prayerful. God wants folks to be thankful. But please understand, this is not advice. It is framed in the imperative mood. It's a command of God. All right, Eric, then what's at stake? This is the will of God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The next verse is amazing, and they're juxtaposed right next to each other. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. That order is sequential on purpose. What's at stake this Thanksgiving? All you say, Eric, that trilogy sounds like Sunday church speak. It doesn't mean anything to me. Sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 you know. That sounds like what a, you know, what, a short week, didn't have anything to preach on? Okay, just grab that. Be joyful. Pray. Be grateful. Let's go home. Sleep off the rest of tryptophan or whatever that stuff is in Turkey. No. Nothing could be more authentic about true Christianity. Now, here's what's tragic. Nothing could seem more absent in measure in some churches than these three. Sustained joy, authentic praying, and a wellspring of gratitude that won't quit. So what's at stake? We can quench the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can extinguish the fire of God in our midst. Quench, it means putting a fire out. Squelching, what is emerging? Jim Cimbala, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York, read a book a few years ago called Fresh Wind, Fresh, remember, Fire. He's saying the Holy Spirit brought among our people a fire that broke out. You know, we can squelch that. Put a damper on that. Now, the fire of God is one fire we don't want to put out. What Paul is saying is that a, there's a lot at stake in these three commands. Our living can light a spreading flame of God's work in our community. You see... It's stated negatively, don't quench the spirit. But the corollary stated positively is true. And I've been trying to figure out all week and haven't finished figuring it out what word I should use. The anonym for quench, I just didn't appreciate. But if we can quench the spirit, 
It means that in fidelity and obedience, we can enhance the Spirit's work in our midst and through us to the community. And there is something super attractive about a joyful Christian. There is something incredibly attractive about a person, as Brother Lawrence would say, it, they, they, they walk around practicing the presence of God, living in open communion with Him. And it's not some, what are you, a monk? What's wrong with you, dude? You know, it's not some stilted, I'm being religious thing. It's as natural as the glory of why we were created to relate to our God. This is Adam walking with God in the cool of the afternoon in the garden before sin entered. And then a person that just walks around with a grateful spirit, entitlement is the last thing on their mind. That is so exceedingly attractive. Andy and I love to be around joyful Christians. I need to be around joyful Christians. I can be melancholy, see everything that's wrong, always trying to fix it and noticing what we need to fix. Uh, and that's okay. But if I'm after those things and not finding my joy centrally in Jesus, I'm missing it. And I'm, I'm quenching the Spirit's work in my life. So what do we want? Don't we want a church full of people who are joyful? A joy that is impervious to the tough things we face in this broken world, and we all face them. A church full of people who, like breathing, relate to our Lord. Moment by moment. And who walk around with a grateful heart, noticing even the small graces from God that bring joy to us. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for every person here. Thank you for every person here who has already received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've already begun a relationship with you. Thanks be to God for the unspeakable gift of salvation that you've brought in Christ. And so we always have an excuse for being joyful and grateful. Thank you for the people who are here this morning who are listening but have not yet come to place their faith in Christ. Lord, by your spirit, which we don't want to quench, open their hearts to see Jesus and bring them to turn away from their sin and its resulting judgment and turn unto you, our great Savior. Father, none of us can get next to this passage without feeling the conviction of the Spirit of God. Bring us, Lord, as we look at Jesus, to rejoice always. Bring us in Enoch-like communion with you where, Lord, we walk with you in open discourse. And Father, how much we have to be grateful, 
Help us count our many blessings. Help them name them and be quick to recognize that we owe you everything and live in your debt. We love you. Now work in our midst, Lord, as we stand and sing and ponder where our hearts are, where they need to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.